What's up, everyone? Welcome back to James Baldwin's America. I am your host, Jesse James, and thank you again for tuning in. First, I want to start off this week with thanking everybody that has rated and reviewed the show on whatever platform that you listen to the show on. I do want to reach out to one person in particular that rated and reviewed the show that made the following comments. They thought it was a good show, but they felt something was missing, and what they felt was missing was that of Black Voices. And to that person that left that comment, I just want to say to you, you are 100% correct. Let me just explain a little something first, and then we'll talk about it. So the last couple of weeks, you've listened to interviews from Craig Werner and Ed Pavlik. And the reason that those were the first two voices that I had speak on the show other than mine were because, one, they are two of my mentors who have taught me so much about Baldwin. But secondly, and probably most importantly, they were just the first two people that responded to me when I reached out to many, many people to be on the show. Those were the first two people that responded that said they would not only be on the show, but we were able to schedule interview time with them. So I'm not trying to in any way hide black voices or put my voice above black voices. For those that know me, they know that's the last thing I would do. But I do understand the comment 100%, and I, I do agree with you. And that's something that we're going to start to rectify today. And hopefully going forward, you'll hear more black voices, and hopefully they will be heard. Those of you that are not black will hear those voices the loudest, and hopefully they'll drive you to make a change in your life no matter what that change may be. So I don't want to spend too much more time talking myself today because I want to play a clip from James Baldwin talking about the artist's struggle for integrity. And then I'm going to give you all a little bit of black girl magic today uh, with an interview I did with my friend, Jamie Dawson, who I will just say generally she is an artist because she is an artist in many forms and her creativity comes in many forms. And we spend a lot of time today talking about that. So with all of that being said, again, thank you so much for the comments and the reviews. I do look at your feedback and I take your feedback seriously, especially because I am a white man running this podcast trying to amplify black voices. So I always want to put black voices at the very forefront of this show. So right after this, we'll hear from James Baldwin, then from Jamie Dawson, and I'll see you guys on the other side of both of those. It seems to me that the honest struggle for his integrity is a kind of metaphor, must be considered as a metaphor for the struggle which is universal and daily 
of all human beings on the face of this terrifying globe to get to become human beings. It is not your fault, it is not my fault that I write. I will never become before you in the position of a complainant for doing something that I must do. What we might get at this evening if we are lucky, if the mic doesn't fail, my voice holds out, if you ask me questions, is what the importance of this effort is. It would seem to me that, however Aaron, this may sound, I want to suggest two propositions. The first one is that the poets, by which I mean all artists, are finally the only people who know the truth about us. Soldiers don't, statesmen don't, priests don't, union leaders don't. Only the poets. That's my first proposition. The second proposition is what I really want to get at tonight. And it sounds mystical, I think, in a country like ours and at a time like this. But something awful is happening to a civilization when it ceases to produce poets. And what is even more crucial, when it ceases anywhere whatever to believe in the report that only poets can make. People, millions of people, whom you will never see, who don't know you, never will know you, people who may try to kill you in the morning, live in a darkness, which if you have that funny, terrible thing, which every artist can recognize and no artist can define, you are responsible to those people to lighten that darkness, and it does not matter what happens to you. You are being used in the way a crab is useful, the way sand certainly has some function. It is impersonal. This force which you didn't ask for, and this destiny which you must accept, is also your responsibility and if you survive it, if you don't cheat, if you don't lie, it is not only, you know, your glory, your achievement. It is almost our only hope. Because only an artist can tell, and only artists have told, since we have heard of man, what it is like for anyone who gets this planet to survive it. What is it like to die? Or to have somebody die? What is it like to fear death? What is it like to fear? What is it like to love? What is it like to be glad? Hymns don't do this. Churches really cannot do it. The trouble is that although the artists can do it, 
the price that he has to pay himself and that you, the audience, must also pay is the willingness to give up everything to realize that although you spent 27 years acquiring this house, this furniture, this position, although you spent 40 years raising this child, these children, nothing, none of it belongs to you. You can only have it, you can only have it by letting it go. You can only take if you are prepared to give. And giving is not an investment. It is not a day at the bargain counter. It is a total risk of everything, of you, of who you think you are, who you think you'd like to be, where you think you'd like to go, everything, and this forever. All right, my friend Jamie Dawson, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. How are you? I'm doing well. Wonderful. So the first question I ask everybody is, what is your favorite piece of work by James Baldwin? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Okay, so something that the people can read. Sonny's Blues. I just love Sonny's Blues. Yeah. Um, that that moment when like everything comes together and there's this realization and there's just like clashing of generations and world and then it's delivered through the lens of music and jazz and oh just the atmosphere. Like if I could write anything, I'd want it to be something like that. Right. How did you first come to Baldwin and his work? I first came to James Baldwin actually through watching documentaries of other notable figures. So Paul Robeson, Maya Angelou, and like a few others. So he wasn't like on my radar in terms of his works, but who he was like as a figure and just that like energy and passion that comes with him. I remember seeing kind of in the background as we talked about all these other people. And so then when I was at UW-Madison in soul music and the civil rights era is when I like read him, heard his voice, um, learned his story and who he was. So I want to get your experience. Uh, You grew up in Tampa, Florida. Um, But like you said, you went to school at UW-Madison. Could you tell me a little bit about your time at UW-Madison as a Black woman and how it not only affected you, but how it was different from growing up in Tampa? Awesome. So growing up in Tampa, Florida, um, it's a very culturally diverse place. I usually went to what we call like magnet schools. So children could get bused in for like their specific program. And we just all be there for the science or the international baccalaureate program or the performing arts. And there we would mesh and then go back to our own kind of separate parts of the city. Um, there, 
I I started to kind of feel the pressures of being just a black woman in these advanced classes all the time. Um, but I never felt different, like for it. And I felt like I was just like, smart girl. And that's it. Uh, so college was actually really where I had to embrace the, the strength of that intersectionality of black and woman and being in an institution um, and also trying to like live life and fight for something. I've actually been processing and coming to terms with my experience at UW-Madison through stories my grandmother tells me. Really? So my grandmother is almost 80. She's 79. She'll be 80 uh, at the end of this month, September. And she was the first Black woman to live in the dormitories at Washington University at St. Louis, Missouri. Really? Yes. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And she stayed in St. Louis for eight months. And the reason why she only stayed for eight months was that the prejudice and the nastiness um, and the, the made to feel different was too much. She said it more or less in the words that she didn't leave anything in St. Louis worth going back to St. Louis for. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there are times I felt like that um, coming back and forth um, between UW-Madison and Florida and my summer travels, where it's like, what is the price being paid here um, to have to navigate a white dominant space where the white lens and white gaze is understood and then all other voices, all of the other voices that exist outside of that, which are many, 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 are all bunched together and also othered. So it's like difficult to navigate, definitely takes a lot of like boundary setting and knowing your why and your purpose, like, within yourself, and also just finding and holding on to those anchors that, you know, make it worth it, whether it's the classes, the education, the professors, the friends, the just being away from home, because the coming of age is still a part of the college story in the midst of all of the other drama and classes and discriminations. Now, something that I thought of when you were just talking because you are an artist you are very a very creative person how did the stress that you dealt with at uw how did that affect your creative process if at all the stress i felt at uw and how that impacted my artistry I would say that to me, it became even more important. Um, I had ideas of things I wanted to talk about, things I wanted to research, whether that was black arts and masking, um, linguistics, things that I did study and wanted to study, but it became that much more important. Because being in Tampa and growing up in a place that was, you know, diverse, albeit sometimes whitewashed, but still 
diverse, um, I don't know if you really get how important those voices are, how drowned out they are in other places. Um, I don't know if you really understand where someone else could be like on the other side of the planet and not understanding why you deserve to live, what you mean when you say you fight for your family and your life or that your race is important. Um, so I went hard <laughs> through the poems, the singing, the dancing, the collaborations. I would say that um, as a lifeline, my artistry also became embedded in the other things that I was doing. So speeches were now art to me. Uh, writing my papers, my, my essays were an art to me, like a lifeline of communication and a, a breath of, of life and understanding. Now, in that class that you and I were in the soul uh, music and the civil rights movement, I remember your final project for that class um, is something that you would go on to perform later, but it was basically like a one-woman show and it was paying tribute to Mahalia Jackson. Could you talk a little bit about that, the strength or encouragement you took as a young Black person from somebody like her? Mm. Mahalia Jackson. So she was another figure who you kind of saw in the in the background and maybe would look over and be like, who is that woman? So in our class, we got to hear her voice and how she was the one who had been familiar with Dr. Martin Luther King and his speeches and his work and told him to tell people about the dream, um, which led to his famous I Have a Dream speech. We listened to her song, I've Been Beefed and I've Been Scorned. And I remember sitting in the front row in that small room in my college chair. And the lights were on and there were other people in the room. But as soon as I heard her voice, all I saw was Mahalia sitting in a dark room, just like a black void in a chair all by herself with just a circular spotlight around her and her face looking down and then looking up, you know, almost like kind of pleading to somebody. And But she wasn't singing to or for anybody. She was just singing for the freedom of her soul. <laughs> and so seeing that and hearing that, I, I took that spirit and I wanted to make a response. I'm so big on call and response. And so my response, I coupled with some of the other works we had been working in the class Danielle McGuire's At the Dark End of the Street, which talked about the vital role of women in the civil rights movement and also the, the vulnerability and lack of protection um, as they built these networks to have accountability for rape, for wages, for, you know, organizing domestically. Yeah, 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 yeah. So just being wrapped up in that spirit, I made poem 
directly to just Mahalia, talking to her. Mahalia, Mahalia. And I imagine that the character is, you know, about my age, 22, 23-year-old, who just has questions, not just about our country, but about herself, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be underappreciated, um, but also what it means to try to find a voice and find God in yourself, to find hope and to hold on and to still try to be at peace at the end of the day. You are, you're a singer, you dance, you do spoken word, you write poetry. Do you have a favorite creative outlet or do they all just kind of whatever you're feeling at the moment? Oh man, when I sing, it's to be happy and it's uh, freedom from the soul. When I write poetry, it's to express, to feel deeply and try to communicate that like a journey from a point A to point B. Um, and dancing is kind of a mesh of all of that when words fail and when you can't create the music, you just respond to it instead. They all mesh in a way, but I have favorites for specific uh, end goals in mind like that. So other than, you know, Mahalia, what other artists um, have influenced you and your work? Some people besides um, Haley Jackson, whose works have been influential for me, are definitely Maya Angelou. Her poetry was the first that I tried to imitate, um, that I would read. I loved how concise she was and the flow and the rhythm. Um, Nina Simone. Donny Hathaway and his voice, Beyonce, is an influence, just uh, a mark for how great you can strive to be and how you don't have to be apologetic about it, um, and how you can take risks, but also have ownership. That's a really big lesson. Um, who else? I would say Tupac. Um, through Tupac, I really learned metaphor and also learned storytelling. Yeah, I learned my storytelling from a rapper. Bars. Yeah. And it's a little archaic, but the things like fables and Aesop's um, psalms and, and songs, those things. Do you have a favorite creative outlet of your own out of everything that you do? Is there one that either you're most passionate about or that you just like, like, what's your go-to, I guess? Is it the poetry or is it some other creative form? I would say it's definitely the, the words. Mm -hmm. The words, whether, whether they're poetry or whether they're being sung, words in front of people from my mouth 
with a microphone is my go-to. It's an atmosphere. Um, it's, I feel like it just sticks with you. You, I'm a visual person, but like my words describe the visions that I see. And so with the words, I feel like I can show people the world the way I see it. All right. I want to transition a little bit away from the creativity and the arts and talk about what's happening in our country right now. Um, just first, a real broad question. Do you have hope for our country? I do have hope in our country. There's, there are change makers here. There are children here. And we have no choice but to move forward um, through time, you know. And so, yes, I, I have hope. Now, you're a rather spiritual, religious person. And Baldwin was greatly influenced by the church. Talking about Mahalia, she was very much within and of the church. Can you talk about the church's impact on yourself personally or maybe broader, like in your upbringing and the importance of the Black church, not only to you as a person, but also as an artist? Ah, yes. Thank you. I grew up in the Church of Christ, which is a non-denominational uh, Christian. We don't use instruments in the church, though it is very musical. So I grew up singing a cappella and just hearing like angelic voices. We'd have a song leader. And the way that we studied the work was scholarly you know, in a sense, where we read and we talk about theology, and then we read some more and talk about theology, and people are pulling out maps of 500 BC and pointing to different things and kings, and, you know, it was really hardcore, kind of, so it, it impacted me as a person because I, I love to study. Um, I will be a lifelong learner, and it teaches me to be okay with asking questions because we were allowed to ask questions. And sometimes you don't have the answers. And it was okay to then rely on this thing that we kind of have as intuition, but is also like a spiritual well and spiritual knowledge. So when you have questions like, what happens after I die? Or why does evil exist? Or what is my purpose as a person? There are ways to research that, in a sense, by leaning into your spirit, yourself, and what religion or what ancient spiritual texts have kind of maybe come to say about these things over thousands and thousands of years. So that's how it's impacted me. It's, it's made me uh, open-minded. It's made me have faith 
in a belief that there's more and that even when we don't have the answers, there's still purpose. And lastly, what I would say about that is just, if you just read the Bible as a book, it's kind of a banger. It's kind of a banger. Like some of these metaphors and parables and like, how can you not hear that somebody turn water into wine and be like, wait, hold up, run that back, you know? (laughs) So just reading it as a text of being inspired of like, how can I write and create such in a way that is as memorable as, you know, John 316. Like, that's a good thing to aspire to, in, in my opinion. I want to go back for a second to your experience at UW and the professors you would have. And I know in the Afro-AM department, since I was part of it, there were some wonderful professors in there that happened to be white. How did you handle that? Because I know for sure the class that you and I shared had Craig Warner and I've had Craig on as a guest, but how did you respond? How did you feel about a white man talking about black history and black music and black culture? Because I know for myself, when I taught that I had to prove myself to my Black students to show them that, one, not only did I know what I was talking about, but I was authentic and I understood the struggle and that, above all else, like I was there as somebody that was an ally. So I wasn't trying to just show off my knowledge but that I really understood the struggle of not only the history but also of the current struggle of my own students so as a black woman coming from the south up to the north and having white professors teach you sometimes about your own history how did how did you deal with that oh yes (laughs) no one has ever asked me that before man um, I would say that the relying on, on the Southern tradition of respecting your elders definitely took me a long way. So even though he, even though I've had white professors or even Asian American professors teaching me about race theory and blackness and history and America and Fanon and those things, I came with a big dose of humility because they're on the other side of that podium. They have studied and lived and just have lived experiences that I don't know about. So to me, it's perfectly fine to learn about the civil rights movement from a person who lived through it and was walking on the streets And I wasn't even born or thought of yet. And my mom wasn't even born or thought of yet. Come on now. Mm -hmm. Um, Also coming with this, a a dose of knowing that is always going to be different. But in that classroom dynamic and in a place where I'm just really striving to learn more and like build connection, the depths of the differences aren't what mattered. Mm 
it was, okay, now, where, where is it the same? Where can we place this critical lens? Where are we both understanding? Where, where are you now? Where do you want to be? And so it did take a, a big amount of trust. But it was like, as long as that trust wasn't broken, I was leaning into the lessons and leaning into the assignments and teachings. I did have moments where that trust was <laughs> tested or denied. Um, but it was, it was good. No, and I think you bringing up the idea of lived experience, I think that's such a good point to touch on because you're right. Like, you know, some of those professors were there and some of those professors were marching. And although they may not know your experience, they do have their own experience and have been shaped by some of the things that have shaped you. So I just, yeah, I think that was a phenomenal point to bring up. Last thing I want to do before I let you go, and I give this opportunity to all of my guests, is to feel free, go ahead and plug away anything that you're working on, whether it be a song, a poem, a show, a website, whatever it might be, the floor is yours. Ah, thank you so much, Jesse, for talking with me, having this conversation, the platform, anything that uh, we've covered here, including. Mahalia, some of the poetry that I worked on as I was a student in Madison can be found on my website, which is DawsonTheArtist.com. And I'm on Instagram at DawsonTheArtist. So again, my name is Jamie Dawson. I'm a writer, performer, activist, scholar, and I just want to see us have community and heal y'all. So let's feel what it means to be here right now. Let's feel what it means to be human and let's connect. That's it. Perfect. Beautiful. Jamie Dawson. That, again, that's DawsonTheArtist.com. Jamie, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for everything over the years, for taking those spaces, for speaking what you speak, opening your home to me. Um, introducing me to wonderful people, like-minded people, just like yourself. Love you. Love you too. My thanks again to Jamie Dawson for joining me. Jamie is one of the most wonderful people in this world I have ever met in my life. And I think from that interview, you can understand why she has the most pure heart and she is a ray of sunshine in a world that is too often filled with clouds. And I am so thankful to call her my friend. I want to go back now to the first piece I played today. James Baldwin talking about the artist's struggle for integrity. And he said something that to me is so important that 
there is no other person in society that can speak the complete truth about this about society except for the poet or artist and i think so often when we see art in whatever form it may be poetry writing music painting whatever we see art and we frown upon it we look down on it we question the artist's motives and what their mindset might be and on the one hand I do understand that but as Baldwin said the artist is the one person that can accurately describe the society in which they live and there are so many artists in all form that have always done that and continue to do that today and over the last four years I think it's it's been so hard for artists to speak their truth and be willing to put themselves out there because no matter what the artist's message may be you're going to have a large percentage of people that disagree talk down about the artist, talk down on the artist's work. And I think we all just need to realize that true art, real art, special art comes from the artist's heart. And it is a reflection not only of themselves, but in the world in which they live. And I think we all just need to keep that in mind no matter what form of art we like or enjoy or appreciate. And before I get out of here, I want to remind you guys that you can follow and give the show a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash James Baldwin's America or on Twitter at James underscore Baldwin's. You can email the show with thoughts or questions at baldwins.america at gmail.com. And please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. And please leave a five-star rating. And hey, if you don't want to leave a five-star rating and still want to give me feedback like the one listener did, I'm okay with it. I'm not opposed to somebody speaking out on what I'm doing. I've never claimed to be perfect. I'm only trying to amplify the voice of James Baldwin because he means so much to me and has has had such a great impact on my life. And because of that, I want to shine a light on his voice, his work, and the work of others that have continued on to do the work just like he did. The Songs of the Week. The first one comes from A Tribe Called Quest, and they're 2016 album we got it from here thanks thank you for your service and it's a song we the people it's not only a great song it came out right around the time of the election but it really is speaking to once again the integrity of the members of tribe and speaking to their reality um how they viewed the world at that time and how it's still happening and going on today. The second song is Can I Get a Witness 
by Marvin Gaye from his 1965 album How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You. The Baldwin Quote of the Week. This comes from his short essay entitled The White Problem, which was published in James Baldwin, The Cross of the Redemption, Uncollected Writings, published in 2010. Now slavery, like murder, is one of the oldest human institutions. So we cannot quarrel about the facts of slavery. That is to say, we could, but that's another story. We enslaved them because, in order to conquer the country, we had to have cheap labor. And the man who is now known as the American Negro, who is one of the oldest Americans, and the only one who never wanted to come here, did the dirty work. Hoed the cotton? In fact, it is not too much to say that without his presence, without the strong back, the American economy, the American nation, would have had a vast amount of trouble creating that capital of which we are now so proud and to which we claim Negroes have never contributed anything. If the Negro had not done all that toting of barges and lifting of bales, America would be a very different country, and it would certainly be a much poorer country. My thanks one more time to Jamie Dawson for joining me this week. Thank you all for listening, as always. Be good to yourself and each other. I will see you again next week. Peace. Mm-hmm.